Hi there, and welcome to Dominated Men. I'm Marco, known online as The Boss. This is the story of a man called Marco. I've been into man-on-man domination for quite a long time. Before setting up my website, I used to do it on a personal level, make homemade videos, hook up with guys, and experiment with bondage and kink. He's a porn producer, posting clips to sites like Pornhub, where they get millions of views. His speciality, if you can call it that, is humiliation. He offers everyday guys, not professional porn stars, about £200 to appear in grainy, amateur-looking videos. Some of the men are straight. Many haven't appeared in porn videos before. You can see their discomfort, their embarrassment on tape. I think it's time for your first punishment. going to strap you to the bed in a minute and shave you. Do you understand? Yes, boss. And how do you feel about that? Okay. Okay, right. It's not just unsettling, it's hard to watch. I film them signing the contract and we talk about what's going to happen. That I tell them, you are being exploited, you are going to be used, you are going to be made to do things for the enjoyment of others. And they still happily sign the contract and do it. Some people wonder if it's consensual and they're not enjoying it, how come they force themselves to do certain activities. Foot worship's a classic one. Um, Well, male pride is a wonderful thing and I think they'd rather force themselves to do it than chicken out because once they've signed that contract, they know fine well, whatever they do, I'm going to show it. The content on Marco's videos isn't that unusual in the world of fetish porn. In terms of sexual practices, what he shows is actually quite mild. But Marco seems to be pushing boundaries in other ways. Marco's insistence that he'll publish a porn video even if a performer changes his mind, well, that's legally questionable. And for one man, that hardline attitude has had a devastating impact. I made several attempts to take my own life. I am living a nightmare every day. I am ashamed of what I did and I am very scared of the moment I get found out. I'm Alexi Mostras and this episode of the Slow Newscast is the second instalment of our ongoing investigation into the world of online porn. It's the story of Marco, an amateur porn producer, and Stefano, a guy who has hit rock bottom. But it's also a bigger story about how the internet has transformed porn to allow anyone with a camera to take part. Because you don't need to be a big studio anymore to make a porn film. There are no barriers of entry, and that shift has been both democratising and dangerous. In May, we published Hunt for the Porn King, a podcast about how we tried to track down the secretive Bernd Bergmayr, the owner of MindGeek, the world's biggest pornography company. Please don't, please don't walk away. Please answer my questions. Mr. Bergmeier, how did you get into MindGeek, sir? What do you think about all the allegations against Pornhub? Do you have anything to say to the women, to the victims? No? Okay. But behind that story was another one. Who was supplying Pornhub in the first place? Who was responsible for the huge amount of porn generated every day and funnelled into the free sites? Nobody had looked at who the porn producers are or how they behaved. 
until now. So this is the story of two men, Marco and Stefano, but it's also the story of an industry working on the edges of society and far away from public view. This is the story of the porn producers. And it's the story of Marco's big secret. Here's a typical video of Marco's. An ordinary looking man is asked to guess the colour of Marco's underwear. If he fails, he has to perform a dare, like walking naked around a public swimming pool. Generally, Marco goes on to have sex with the man and performs other fetish activities like whipping and belting. Sometimes other men are involved. But there's one consistent truth about Marco's videos. The faces of the men in the films, the ones paid to perform, often look embarrassed or uncomfortable. I've actually started doing prank medical scenarios where before the actual shoot, a guy turns up to what he thinks is a medical centre to have a physical examination and it's actually a setup by me. The set is really convincing and guys believe it real and I secretly film them getting intimately probed by a inverted commas doctor who's usually me. This is Marco explaining one of his specialities, the fake medical exam. Taken on face value... What he's describing, a fake clinic, a fake doctor, is deeply problematic. It seems like sexual assault. There are other troubling sections of his website as well. On one, Marco boasts about a young performer who signed a release form without reading it properly. Now, Marco would maintain that all of this is bravado. He'd say that it's all a game designed to titillate his viewers. Then again, elsewhere on his website, he says explicitly, there is no acting. Everything is real. Just bear in mind that it is real, that guys aren't being asked to act, and they haven't rehearsed what's happened, even though they would have signed up to it and they'll have an idea of what's involved. But it's certainly not scripted. We don't have takes and retakes. What you see is very much what you get. So, in Marco's case, it's not clear what's true and what's a game. And in fact, many porn sites play with this idea of consent. You've got to trust the producer that they're acting responsibly, that it is all just a game. The problem is, no one seems to be checking. One man, a man we're calling Stefano, whose testimony here is read by an actor, found this out the hard way. He lost his job after the financial crisis in 2008 and came to England to seek work. At first, he crashed on his brother's sofa. His family struggled to support him and eventually he had to move out. For a period of about three months, I was living on the streets. I started to use drugs. Stefano started begging, mainly so he could buy heroin. And it was at this point, when he was at his lowest ebb, that he met Marco. He asked if I would agree to participate in an erotic video on my home for cash. He told me to complete a short application form on his website, which I did. I was high on drugs and depressed. I acted on impulse and was not thinking clearly. Two days after filling in Marco's application form, Stefano's phone buzzed. A message told him to travel to Isleworth, a town on the outskirts of London. Marco was waiting. I met Marco at the Isleworth Leisure Centre in Hounslow. An hour or so before 
I had taken drugs. The moment we met, he told me to walk around the changing rooms naked, and he examined me with his eyes. At the time, unknown to me, he had videoed me doing this. Let's leave Marco and Stefano where they are for the moment, on the damp grey changing room floor of Isleworth Leisure Centre and Library, because porn wasn't always like that. Not very long ago, it almost went mainstream. For 15 years between 1969 and about 1984, porn went through a golden age. Think Linda Lovelace's soft-focused performance in Deep Throat. Well, there it is, you little bugger, there it is. What? <laughs> your clitoris, it's deep down in the bottom of your throat. <laughs> now, now, Miss Lovelace... Listen, having a clitoris deep down in the bottom of your throat is better than having no clitoris at all. Or Blue Movie, the 1969 erotic film directed by Andy Warhol. This period was known as porno chic. It was a time when the glamour of Hollywood mixed with the New York art scene to embrace pornography and gave it a legitimacy it has never had before or since. Even in that glamorous period, there was a dark side, though. Linda Lovelace possibly the world's most famous porn star, has since claimed that she was forced into making Deep Throat. But by 2021, even that superficial glamour had disappeared. Today, there are still big studios, but they're not making porn for mainstream audiences. And alongside them, you've got thousands of smaller producers making porn a bit like Marco is, in leisure centre changing rooms or in dirty hotels. What exactly happened to porn to bring it to that place? <laughs> long, long time ago, I was the police. Then my life has changed. I became, from a very crazy story, uh, fashion and magazine photographer, kind of petit journalist. That's Pierre Woodman, a former cop-turned-porn star. Woodman has been on the front line of the industry for almost 30 years. He's one of porn's biggest figures. And if anyone has been a witness to porn's fundamental shifts, it's him. Beginning in 1970, 72, there was something huge with a regular cinema director trying to do something porn, but with a 35mm camera. You know, it was cinema. It was, it was something serious with a script, with everything. It was a gold uh, American period. And then in the beginning of the nine, uh, 1980s, arrives a video. So the video has destroyed completely this period because it was so cheap. So people jump on that and have uh, killed the cinema period of the porn industry. In the 1990s, there was a renaissance in porn production. Studios started investing in good quality cameras. Woodman started making porn films to sell on DVD. In the early noughties, there was still a strong demand for the DVD format because the internet wasn't fast enough to play more than a few seconds of video. And then, all of a sudden, it was. In March 2007, an amateur sex video was posted on a site called Pornhub. Fast internet had opened the floodgates. A tidal wave of free porn swept away the DVD industry. The days of high budgets and expensive cameras were over. Even in its golden age, porn had a seedy side. But as the number of producers shot up, so too did the potential for sketchy practices. 
And unlike before, where an actress like Linda Lovelace was so well known that her complaints would be listened to, if something bad happens on a porn set today, it often stays behind closed doors. There's just too much content to regulate. And that's the dynamic at play with Marco and Stefano in Isleworth Leisure Centre. When he had finished secretly filming Stefano, the two men went back to a local hotel. Stefano was told to lie on a bed and a camera was positioned close to his face. His reactions were filmed while Marco carried out various sexual acts before having sex with him. Stefano's face in the video, which you can still find online, is confused and uncomfortable. His account of what happened in that hotel room comes from a witness statement he later prepared. I warn you, it's not an easy listen. The video included the insertion of various objects to my hands. This is something I have never done before, and the defendant knew this. It was far beyond what I even imagined was going to happen in the filming. The entire experience was highly shocking, intrusive and traumatic for me. And this is being played in my head constantly ever since. I can still feel the physical pain inside my body every time I remember the incident. Shortly after they finished, Marco asked Stefano to sign a contract and then handed him £180 in cash. Think about that for a minute. £180. Not much for having sex on camera for the first time. A few hours after signing the release form, Stefano started having second thoughts. Approximately two hours after filming, I sobered up and realised what I did. I immediately contacted the defendant by telephone to say that I no longer wanted him to publish the video and that I would repay him the money plus any expenses that he incurred. He hung the phone up on me. Eventually, Stefano got through by withholding his number. I explained that I did not want him to publish the video as I was a married man, desperately seeking money and couldn't believe what I had done. He laughed and closed the phone on me again. But Marco published the video anyway. On Pornhub, it quickly attracted almost 200,000 views. Not only was Stefano's face clearly visible, but in the description... Marco boasted that Stefano had tried to get me not to publish the video and had known for months that this dreaded moment would come. Distraught, Stefano tried to move on with his life. He slowly began to repair his relationship with his wife, but he struggled to shake off the fear that someone would recognise him on Pornhub. Eventually, the pressure got too much. I made several attempts to take my own life. The last time was just before I contacted my solicitors. It is difficult to explain the way I feel. I am living a nightmare every day. I am ashamed of what I did and I am very scared of the moment I get found out by my family. Stefano was at his lowest point. He couldn't see a way out, but he had to try something. So he contacted a lawyer called Yair Cohen. No, you know, it's better to do it because, you know, I'm always busy and, and, and it's getting kind of busier, you know. With the That's Yair. 
He's probably Britain's leading lawyer for internet abuse. In 2018, Yair represented a woman who was the victim of the longest-running case of internet trolling in the UK. Yair is not your typical corporate lawyer. He's got long curly hair, for one thing, and he used to be in the Israeli army. I really like him. He's definitely one of the good guys. We have known each other for, for I think, over 10 years now. Since, 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 since the very first case, significant case of internet law, where it, it was the first ever Facebook injunction that was intended to reveal the identity of internet trolls. In the last few years, Yair's attention has switched to porn. And he tells me that the reason why he switched focus was that people kept contacting him, alleging they had been taken advantage of by porn producers. First, it is probably worth uh, giving a little bit of, uh, of an introduction to the porn industry uh, in the UK, at least from the legal side of things, is that it is completely unregulated. So anyone could be a porn producer. Anyone can invite, uh, transport, pub- publish, seduce uh, men and women to the property, whether it is their home property or could, uh, a hired studio or, or it could be uh, some industrial uh, estate. So anyone, anyone could bring people to those venues and start filming pornography. That means that there are no, there's no oversight of perhaps a criminal record that uh, porn producers might have. There are no rules that are, are intended to protect the people who act, the actors in those films or, or the, the performers in those films. Then there are no health and safety minimum requirements. There are pretty much no identification requirements that are being enforced. So the rules are pretty liberals, I would say. I would say it's, it's, it's kind of wild west of the internet. Yair has spoken to dozens of young men and women who say they've been abused on porn sets. Often, he says, producers will lure them in with the promise of a modelling contract, only to pressure them into going further when they are physically in the studio. The potential for abuse has rocketed since the internet, Yair said, the major porn studios had to abide by strict rules. Now producing porn is more like driving for Uber. Anyone can do it. Contrary to what Marco believes, signing a release form doesn't sign away all your rights. Here are some of the questions Yair will ask. Was the person too young to give consent? Were they under the influence of drugs or alcohol? Did they speak enough English to understand what they were signing? Were they falsely told that the movie would only be available in a foreign country? and never on Pornhub. And then Yair tells me a story of a real case that he's recently dealt with. He says it's typical of the allegations that he hears. Again, I warn you, some of the details are quite shocking. A girl agreed to have sex with with two guys. That was the basis in return for £250 or so. She was taking to a location and she was giving some wine after she had sex with the two guys, she, she asked for her money and asked to be driven back home. But then she was asked to stay there and uh, five or six other guys uh, just turned up off the street and she was told that in order to be paid, she's now going to have to have what they call uh, a gangbang, you know, you know, 
do, do, doing the thing with, with, with eight of them or, or six of them. She could have said no, but she didn't because she felt that she, she felt intimidated. She was a little bit scared. Uh, she just wanted to get out of there. She wasn't in the mood. She'd just been through a trauma. She wasn't, she wasn't really, it was the first time and she wasn't really in the right state of mind to, 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 to make a decision at the time. She didn't feel she could leave the, the studio freely. Also, she was told she wasn't going to get paid and, and all the rest of it. So she, she did that. And, and after she finished, they, they, they allowed her to leave or, or give her a ride to the train station. So under those circumstances, uh, there are question marks about consent. When I heard that story, my immediate reaction was, this woman was raped. Yair agrees. When I spoke to her, uh, she didn't really understand that she was actually raped. But she was, <laughs> you know, and, and you're having this conversation, you say, you, you realize that you actually, you know, actually raped. And, you know, suddenly there's this realization that if anything like this was happening on the street, you know, not in a private studio, it would have been a definite rape. You know, if somebody went to the police and say, you know, I had was with my boyfriend the other day and he locked me in the room and we had some wine. And before I realized there was like seven, seven guys, like picked them off the street. He gave them a tenner each and, and I had to have sex with all of them. I mean, you know, can you imagine... In only a tiny proportion of the cases Yair has dealt with has the victim gone to the police. They're too vulnerable, often scared of the producers, and the burden of proof in a criminal setting is too high. Look, the reality is that if you go to the police, you need to give them name and address and who the person is and where they live and who they are and what happened and where it happens and all that. And then the likelihood that the police will actually follow it through is, is so low anyway. Uh, and if the police did follow it through, then you're looking at standard of proof, which is really beyond reasonable doubt, which is really unrealistic. Even going after a civil remedy, like getting the video taken down, is hard. Many of the production companies operate under opaque corporate structures, making it tricky to find out who really owns them. In 2019, six men working for a US porn site and production company called Girls Do Porn were charged with sex trafficking and coercion. The men tricked girls into having sex by falsely telling them that the videos would never be released on the internet. When the scandal broke, porn industry lobbyists passed it off as a one-off. But Yair is emphatic that abuse in the industry is common. My belief is that it is widespread. It, it, it is very, very common. It is very common. It, it is very, very common. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone who is involved with pornography is a victim of uh, assault. I'm not. But it is very common. When we published our first investigation into online porn about our hunt for Bernd Bergmayr, the man behind the biggest porn company in the world... We got a bit of pushback, mainly from inside the porn industry. Some sex workers said we'd made generalisations and that we'd included voices of people who wanted the entire porn industry shut down. And it made me wonder if I had a bias against porn. Was I looking at online videos showing rough sex, for instance, and automatically assuming that someone was getting hurt? What did sex workers themselves think differentiated the good producers from the bad ones like i said i've had companies that i'm like i would shoot for them over and over any day of the week but then 
at the same time, I also uh, have completely stopped working with smaller companies because oftentimes it is a lack of accountability at onset without, you know, the safeguards in place. And it's just too sketchy for me anymore to want to really be a part of. That's Emily Wright. She's a porn actress in Los Angeles, and she basically told me, yeah, you were right to question your assumptions. Because some porn studios do act responsibly, she said. Even rough sex scenes with hitting and choking are planned out meticulously in advance with checklists showing what performers will and won't do. Some studios, on the other hand, especially the smaller ones, are much more likely to cross boundaries, she said. A lot of the smaller companies, my personal theory is that they don't do things like that because they kind of thrive in the gray area of, oh, well, you know, if I can get away with this, I'm going to. I do think during the pandemic, these smaller producers and things have been just coming out of the woodworks and kind of thriving off of the naivete of just the younger girls and a lot of girls started during the pandemic and it's been it kind of pushed towards a lot more of your own personal content but a lot of the bigger sets have been shooting less etc etc so it kind of pushed us more into this market of the smaller films which unfortunately is where these creeps thrive Now, what I'm not saying here is that rough or extreme porn isn't problematic. Many people believe that hardcore porn is in itself unhealthy, even if the participants are consenting. There's quite a lot of evidence to back up that view, although there's also plenty of evidence on the other side. But that's a bigger debate for another day. What I'm focusing on now is a narrower issue. It's about safety and consent. And what Emily was telling me was that some porn studios acted safely towards performers and some didn't. And the more I learnt, the more I realised that performers didn't have much control over which type of experience they had. Sometimes agents lied about which studios were reputable, for instance. Other times, studios covered up when a performer had crossed the line. The whole ecosystem of porn was pretty much set up to avoid accountability. Do you get the sense that it's not a very transparent ecosystem? Oh, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because oftentimes, even with the really big companies, you'll shoot with, you know, one of their smaller sites because a company like MindGeek has hundreds of brands of different videos and just different labels for everything. So you're not really quite sure at the end of the day what the company you're shooting for is and you really have to like ask around and ask questions and find people who know otherwise you never really for sure know who you're working for or anything selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of the Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com. What happens if the person complaining about a porn studio isn't a performer, but another producer? And not just any producer, but one of the biggest names in the whole industry. Remember Pierre Woodman, the famous French porn producer? After his DVD films flopped, Woodman pivoted, setting up online, and he now runs a very successful porn site selling subscriptions. He's a big player in the industry, but he's a minnow compared to the man he's picked to fight with, a man who runs the world's most popular porn site, a man called Stéphane Paco. If you think of MindGeek and Pornhub as Coca-Cola, then Paco's company, called WGCZ Holding, is Pepsi. Based in the Czech Republic, WGCZ runs more than 60 companies and websites, including X Videos, a porn site that is actually more popular than Pornhub. But Paco doesn't just own free porn sites. He owns production companies as well. And one of those production companies is called Legal Porno. Legal Porno is a Czech-based studio that specialises in extreme porn. Its content is about as far away from a Playboy centrefold as it's possible to get. Woodman is obsessed by this site. He claims that female performers are suffering physical injuries through its extreme sexual practices. Paco has understood that if he was able to make something uh, very extreme that no one else can do, he will, of course, get a part of the market. It was a very, very dirty, vicious calculation. According to Woodman, legal pornos directors ask female performers to use lidocaine, a skin-numbing cream, before sex. The cream enables the directors to record much rougher sex than they would otherwise, but can also prevent the women from knowing when their bodies have had enough. They start to use the lidocaine inside the, the anus of the, the woman. Immediately, of course, you have some girl 18 years old, even some of them never try anal sex in their lives. And of course, some of them did it, many of them did it. But you, you don't need to be a scientist to understand that, okay, you can make an anesthesia that if I cut my arm with an anesthesia, <laughs> maybe I will not feel nothing, but one hour after I will cry. And this is exactly what's happened to many women. Many girls have been broken. Not only did female performers use lidocaine, Woodman told me, 
but male performers inject erection-sustaining drugs before sex. The result, according to Woodman, is that during some scenes at least, nobody on set can feel anything. Everything was like a machine who the, smashed the flesh of everybody and no, no care of anything, no heart, no any respect. At this point in the investigation, I was working with my colleague at Tortoise, Kim Dara. A few days after Kim and I spoke, Woodman emailed her a file. And in that file were video interviews with 10 female porn performers. Anal si skúšala? Niekedy? Anal. All of them talking about their experiences with legal porno. Again, I need to warn you, what follows are graphic descriptions of extreme porn. One Czech woman told Woodman that before legal porno, she had only had anal sex with her boyfriend. When she was on set, however, the director immediately encouraged her to have sex with three guys. The sex was so rough, she says that she began bleeding and had to stop. Even though she was injured, this woman claims she wasn't paid by legal porno because the shoot had to be cancelled. Before this happened, she also says the directors used anaesthetic to try and prolong the scene. Did she get some money? Uh, no. No money? What I was no money every day. I uh, never go because I don't know she, and for three days she didn't feel her ass. At this point, I should be very clear. Woodman is not a neutral witness in this story, far from it. He's currently fighting a court case with Stefan Paco, the owner of X Videos and of Legal Porno. It's a fight that's got personal and very nasty. Woodman himself has been accused of acting abusively towards female performers, including by Lana Rhodes, one of the most popular porn stars in the world today. And finally, the testimonies he's gathered, well, they come from his own casting couch interviews where the women go on to have sex with him. It's not exactly a neutral setting. Woodman denies any wrongdoing strenuously, but taking all of that together, we knew we couldn't just rely on him and what he was saying about legal porno. So, we called up Jakob Zelenka, a Czech journalist who has been looking into the online porn industry in that country. A few months ago, a woman got in contact with Jakob to tell him about a bad experience she'd had with a producer. She describes how someone blackmails her and hurts her during filming for legal porno. Jakob asked his contacts in the Prague porn industry about what they knew. They led him to four women and two producers who all alleged that female performers were physically injured on the legal porno set. Four women described their stories on the record. For example, one girl was hurt during the shooting and she even, even ended up in hospital. Some practices in legal porno were so painful they used lidocaine as a local anaesthetic. 
After publishing of stories, police in Czech Republic started investigation legal porno. We don't know when they finish it. As you can hear, Jacob says that the Czech police opened an investigation into legal porno following his reporting and that he's been helping connect the police to victims. Legal porno, for their part, has denied any claims of wrongdoing. They say Pierre Woodman is making it all up. Their lawyers told us that they've filed a lawsuit against Denik N, the news website that Jacob works for, for publishing unverified, false and misleading information. The lawyers also told us that the police investigation has now been dismissed for failure to prove the allegations. We asked the Czech police to clarify the situation, but they declined to comment. Back to the UK and back to Stefano, the man who made a film in an Isleworth hotel with Marco, the amateur gay porn producer. When we left them, Stefano had called Yair in desperation. The video of his sexual encounter with Marco remained online and was attracting hundreds of thousands of views. He felt it was only a matter of time before someone recognised him. So Yair acted fast. He employed a private investigator to try and find out Marco's real identity. The first challenge was to identify those producers or the producer. Our client couldn't remember exactly. He was disorientated. He was he was taken to a location, but he, he didn't remember where it was. So we, we tried to locate the producer. We did a lot of investigatory work. We have some great uh, people who do the investiga- online investigation for us. And we managed to locate an individual in an address in Essex. And all indications were that it was the right It was the person we were looking for. And this is where we get to the secret, the one that Marco has been hiding. Because Marco had two jobs. By night, he was a porn producer, persuading men like Stefano to humiliate themselves on film. By day, well, I'll let Yaya tell it. But what was very surprising about this was that we also found through, through, through our, our online uh, research that that same individual was in fact a, a head teacher in a primary school. Yes, you heard that right. Marco, when he was making these porn videos, was a head teacher at a primary school. He had been a head for about five years when he filmed Stefano. Marco's real name is Mario Rogers. Rogers resigned from a school in Essex a few years ago, but until last month, he was a governor at another school with a specific remit to take charge of child safety. Now, we've got to be clear here. There's no rule that says that a producer of explicit porn videos can't also be an excellent head teacher, although it might not be the first thing you'd look for on a resume. But the complaints against Marco or Mario aren't that he runs a porn site in a school at the same time. It's that, at least in Stefano's case, he made a porn video using a vulnerable man under the influence of drugs who may not have been able to consent, and then refused to take down the videos even after the man changed his mind. There are also questions about how he gains consent of men in other videos, such as the ones featuring the fake medical exams. When Yair's investigators tracked the producer down to his home in Essex, they sent him something called a letter before action. 
The letter outlined all the claims against Mario and demanded that he immediately take down the video of Stefano as well as pay him compensation. A few days later, Mario replied. He agreed to all of Yair's demands. He transferred copyright in the video back to Stefano and paid him £20,000 in compensation, plus legal costs. In return, Stefano agreed not to sue him in court. Last week, we tried to ask Mario Rogers some questions, but as soon as he received our emails, he removed all traces of his pornography business from the web. However, we had also briefed the Sunday Times about the story, and when they got in contact with Mario, they did receive a response. I deeply regret my actions, he said. I learnt from this and have deleted the site. I would like to make clear that I was not aware of the person being under the influence of drugs. When I read Mario's statement, I was a bit sceptical. Yes, he deleted his site, but only a few days earlier, when I'd contacted him. He'd been happy to keep the site running for almost four years after Yair's investigators managed to track him down to his home in Essex. It made me question whether Mario did regret the experience with Stefano, or whether he just regretted getting caught. More importantly, Stefano is now in a better place. Since signing the settlement agreement at the end of 2017, he's got a job in the NHS. His marriage is strong, and he's got a great relationship with his young daughter. He's happier than he's been for years. But, and here's the depressing thing, even though the video was removed from Pornhub and the other big porn sites, it's still available online for those who know where to look. We managed to find it in just a few clicks. Stefano's face will never vanish entirely from the internet. This persistent presence of the videos online means that I have been living all the time with dread, awareness and knowledge that the videos are online. I now want to move on with my life, be happy with my family, and I would also like to go to university. I feel that this has all been jeopardized, and fear that I may never be able to escape from this nightmare. So, Stefano got a settlement, but the memories of his encounter with Marco will never fade. But for me, the story is representative of a bigger problem. There seems to be a massive power imbalance between some performers, on the one hand, and the thousands of porn studios that operate with little rules or regulations, on the other. Yair has heard plenty of stories from clients which, if true, would amount to criminal behaviour, including allegations of sexual assault and rape. And yet, almost none of these ever reach a criminal court. Some people are talking now about porn having a Me Too moment. There's a trickle of men and women who have come forward with stories of abuse. That might be true, but from what I've seen, there's still a long way to go. This story was reported by me, Alexi Mostras, with additional reporting by Kim Dara, Patricia Clark and Xavier Greenwood. The editor was Basha Cummings, sound designed by Tim Clay. The producer was Matt Russell. 
Thanks so much for listening this week. And if you enjoyed this episode, then I think you should join Tortoise. We're a bunch of journalists trying to do things differently, opening up and inviting our members, hopefully soon to be you, to help shape our ideas and our work. You can get involved in tons of different ways. All you need to do is go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use the code BASHA50, that's my name, B-A-S-I-A 50 for a special discounted price. Thank you and we'll see you next week. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts.